Well, good morning. If, if, uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are studying in the book of 1 Samuel. And if you're just joining us, um, in the spring, like winter and spring, we started the book of 1 Samuel. We took a break from it um, in the summer, and now we're back in it. And, and uh, somebody just told me this morning that when they found out that we're in chapter 21 this morning that they missed all the good stuff. Um, so uh, I'm not sure what she was thinking of, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, hopefully there's some good stuff in the other ones to come. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you weren't here and you're not familiar at all with the book of First Samuel, last week uh, I did a summary kind of sermon over the first 20 chapters. So if, if you want to get caught up, it's one sermon. That's all you have to suffer through. Um, the uh, Not all, like, 26 sermons that I preached, uh, like, leading up to this day, but just the one. So um, it'll get you caught up. But... Uh, you know, if you're, just to give you a little bit caught up where the story, at the end of, well, at the beginning of chapter 20, what we find out is that David, who's the main, who's, who's God's anointed king, um, which is, which is problematic when there's actually another king that's reigning, um, uh, who, who suspects that you're God's anointed king, because what happened um, in, the, in the pages leading up to chapter 20 was that, was that Saul, the reigning king of the land, um, suspects that David is, the, is going to usurp his place, and so Saul has been trying to kill David through a whole bunch of different means. Um, he hucked a spear at him a couple times. He, he sent him into battle thinking the, the Philistines would kill him. He sent assassins after him. All of it backfired. Um, he, he, he convinced David's best friend and, his, and, and Saul's son that he wasn't trying to kill David. Um, and so at the beginning of chapter 20, like David's on the run, and he says this in, um, in verse 3. He says, Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. Then he says this, but truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. You know, what David begins chapter 20 with was this conviction that death is pursuing him and there's, there's barely a step between him and the reaper, right? In fact, it's so close that he can feel death's breath on the back of his neck sort of expression. So David's on the run and, and chapter 20 um, Chapter 20, he sends Jonathan back. They have this plan to kind of discern um, Saul's true motives. And at the end of chapter 20, um, there's this tragic and sad moment where David and Jonathan have to part because David's worst fears were realized. And Jonathan acknowledges that, yeah, my dad's trying to kill you. And as we kick off chapter 21, um, David becomes a fugitive and he'll remain a fugitive for basically the rest of the book. Um, David is on the run from King Saul. You know, it's, it's, as we get into chapter 21, though, if you know anything about David as a character in the Bible, 21 is one of those chapters that I don't think we expect to see David in because it's one of those situations, it's, and there's other chapters like this, where, where the Bible is, kind of, is pretty clear about David's sin. And David kind of gets himself into a situation where he tries to solve problems on his own and he just keeps digging himself a deeper and deeper and deeper hole. I don't know if any of you have ever been in that situation yourself where, where you guys are laughing. You're looking at me as if I do that. 
You know, like some crisis hits you or just like the pressures of life. It doesn't even have to be a crisis and you just kind of do it on your own and do it in your own strength and, and maybe like are trying to solve it. Maybe even sometimes like you, you disobey the Lord and, and, and disobey what he's calling you to do or, what he's, or do what he's calling you not to do and you just keep digging a deeper and deeper and deeper hole until you finally get to that point where you're like, I'm at the end of my rope. Everything's falling apart. I have no choice but to call out to the Lord. Has anybody ever been there? Three of us. Okay. (laughs) The rest of you should be preaching today, maybe not me. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly what happens with David here. David, in the fear of having to run from King Saul, like makes some really bad decisions, and he makes one bad decision, which leads to another bad decision, which leads to an even worse decision, which leads to like this catastrophic like thing happening to him. You know, I think it's a story that we can all like relate to, and we probably all need to learn from. And but what we find out in the midst of it is, and maybe you've been there where when you create this huge problem for yourself and you find yourself like up against the wall with no place else to turn and you turn to the Lord, like he is gracious to you and he sustains you and he rescues you and he delivers you even though you completely don't deserve it. That's the kind of God that we worship. He rescues those who don't deserve to be rescued. He rescues those that, that... create problems for themselves. The kingdom of God isn't filled with like righteous people who've always got it all together. The kingdom of God is filled with people that have like dug themselves into a hole and have cried out to the Lord. And instead of him saying, well, I told you so, he steps in and and is gracious and merciful and compassionate. And that's what we're going to see with King David. And we have two main points this morning. The first part of the story, this, there's two main scenes in chapter 21 that we're going to look at. The first is we're going to see God sustain David, his king, in verses 1 through 9. And then in the rest of the chapter, verses 10 through 15, we're going to see God save his king. So please stand with me. I'm going to read chapter 21, probably the first nine verses or so. And then we'll pray and then we'll get into the text together. This is God's word for his church, First Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter in which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place." Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have, have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was, not an, though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, and there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. I'll stop, I'll stop there. Let me just pray, and we'll get into the text. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that it, 
Um, it serves it serves us in so many ways. It, it teaches us, it corrects us, it admonishes us, um, it exposes the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And I just pray that you would um, do that this morning. You would empower me to speak. You, you would open our hearts to hear, um, ultimately, so that Jesus could be glorified um, in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as we get in here to chapter 1, what we find out is that after David leaves Jonathan, he heads up to the city of Nob, um, and, uh, and, he, and, and as he's coming up there, Ahimelech the priest, and, and I, I think from the rest of the scriptures, you find out that he was the high priest. He must have seen David coming, so he, he goes out to meet David, and it says that he's trembling, like Ahimelech is fearful. Um, we don't have time to look forward to it, but over in chapter 22, what we realize is that Ahimelech knew that David was the, the, Saul's, like the captain of Saul's bodyguard. And so David showing up without the king, without any of his soldiers, kind of all on his own, like seemed strange, like seemed like a bad omen, like, oh, what's David coming from that he's here by himself? So Ahimelech, the priest, is, is fearful about what the news is that David might be bringing. Um, so when he asked David the question, I think it's kind of funny. Like, why are you alone and no one is with you? There's two questions there. Why are you alone and no one is with you? Well, the reason why no one is with you is that's the definition of me being alone, right? So I'm not sure why the two questions, but he's making sure he covers his bases, right? David's all by himself, and he needs to explain to Ahimelech why he's by himself and why he's not, like, doing something. And his answer in verse 2 is basically this. Hey, Saul sent me on a secret mission. It's so secret that if I told you what it was, I'd have to kill you, right? And in fact, all the men that are with me, I've sent them to another place that's also secret. And we're not allowed to talk about that either. And it's interesting. None of that's true. David shows up fleeing from his life. Ahimelech asks him to, to give, give an account for what he's doing. And he immediately turns to deception. I'm on a super secret mission that I can't talk about, but I need some food. You know, there's a lot of times, you know, this is why we don't, we, we can't just like always say like, oh, you should be like David. Well, maybe not. Because <laughs> here, like David in his like fear and his anxiety, the first thing that he does is he, is he responds by lying to Ahimelech the priest. And what we're going to find out next week, Lord willing, is that that lie had like terrible, terrible consequences. But here, in seeking to preserve his life, he lies. I know a lot of people will try to like try to explain it away, try to justify it. Matthew Henry says uh, he wrote, he was a commentator. He wrote like in the late 1600s, early 1700s, so like 300 years ago. He said that the, the Lord does, that the, the scriptures do not conceal it, so we dare not justify it. In fact, he goes on, he says this, he said, David was a man of great faith and courage, and that now both failed him. And he fell thus foully through fear and cowardice, and both owing to the weakness of his faith. He goes on. He says, had he trusted God aright, he would have not used such a sorry, sinful shift as this for his own preservation. It is written, not for our imitation, not in the greatest straits, but for our admonition. I love some of that language. Like, such a sorry, sinful shift. You know, like, only people in the 1700s talked about talked that way, right? Like, 
He says, but it's, it's not for imitation, not even in the worst situation should we resort to that, is what Matthew Henry is saying. He should have trusted the Lord, but here in this moment, he failed to do so. You know, the, um, the story continues. We see David's purpose for coming there. In verse 3, he says, like, hey, I, but because we've got this secret mission and my men are hiding somewhere else, I need some bread. Like, hook me up with some food so that I can, like, provide for my guys. And, and, uh, and Ahimelech answers in verse 4. He says, and the priest answered David and said, there is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread if only the young men have kept themselves from women. So it's interesting what happens here. Apparently the tabernacle had been assembled on this site at Nob. And when David came there, there was only this consecrated bread. And we're going to discover later on what the bread is. But it was called the bread of the presence. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in, in just a little bit. But every Sabbath day, new bread was baked and it was placed in there. And they had this old bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. And so the priest has this bread on hand for David, who's on this secret mission from Saul. But it's only lawful for the priests to eat it. And, and yet he's willing to give it to David under one, under one condition. And the condition is that they have kept themselves from women. You know, it, the priest has nothing against like sexual relationships in marriage. Like God gave like sexuality to be enjoyed in marriage. It's a blessing from him. That's not what this is about. What the priest is talking about here is ritual uncleanness. Because in the law, what happens in the law is that anytime you're in contact with bodily fluids of any kind, I won't go into the specifics, anytime you're in contact with bodily fluids, you're ritually unclean until you like, uh, like go through a ritual cleansing. And so what the priest is basically asking him is, hey, before you guys set off on your secret mission, for the sake of like ritual purity, for the sake of like seeking God's favor on your mission, have you, did you guys like go through a period of abstinence? To make sure you're clean before you sit out on your mission. Because I don't want to give you this bread that only priests are supposed to eat unless you're ritually clean. And David's answer is interesting. He, he's deceptive again, but now he doesn't directly lie. He, he asks like a diverting question. Look what he says in verse 5. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. So he basically is saying this. He says, like, hey, on all of our previous missions, we always, like, abstained, even though it wasn't a super secret mission. He says, but now, how much more do you think we would have done that? Because it is a secret mission, right? That's what he's, that's what he's saying. He asks the question. He diverts, like, Ahimelech's, like, attention away. And Ahimelech doesn't answer. David doesn't, David doesn't answer. But he implies that, yeah, 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 we did. We took all the time we needed because this is a super secret mission. And so Ahimelech the priest, verse uh, 6, so the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which was removed before the Lord in order, in order to put the hot bread in its place when it was taken away. You know, the bread of the presence is interesting because um, it... it it was in the holy place of the temple, right? It was right, it was, there was a table off to the left when you were to walk in. The Holy of Holies was there, um, which was the, this, this place that only the high priest could go in uh, one time a year on the other side of the curtain. But right in front of that curtain, um, well, behind that curtain was where the presence of God would dwell. And so they would lay this bread on the outside of that room on this table, and it was called the bread of the presence because it was laid down in God's presence, 
But the bread has all sorts of symbolic meaning. The, 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 the directions in baking the bread connect it back to the giving of the manna in the wilderness. And, and when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but they were wandering in the wilderness. They didn't have food. God sent manna from heaven every day for them to eat. Except on, and they could gather just enough for that day, except on Friday. On Friday, they could gather a double amount so that they would have enough food for Friday and for Saturday, which was the Sabbath day. And they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath day. And the the, the recipe for the bread connects it back to that double gathering of manna on the, on the, uh, in the wilderness. And so the bread is symbolic of looking back to God's like covenant faithfulness to his people. It's symbolic of the fact that God always provided for his people in the wilderness. Like God, isn't, God, God does not need bread. We do. And he's the one that's committed to, to sustain and provide for his people. And so here, here you've got David the king wandering in the wilderness. And you've got Ahimelech. We don't know how much of all this he's grasping. But you've got Ahimelech with this consecrated bread. And he turns and he gives some of that consecrated bread to David, even though it was technically like a violation of the law. Because the bread itself symbolizes God providing for his people. It's this, it's this act of provision and, and God sustaining his king, David. It's interesting because Jesus takes this very story, as interesting as it is, and he uses it in Matthew chapter 12 um, to, to describe, uh, to teach us something about himself and about true religion. And, and the context of Matthew chapter 12 is that his disciples and him were walking along by some grain fields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples were picking up some of the, the, the wheat, like heads, is that what you call them? Farmers? Is it head of wheat? Okay, good. Um, the heads of wheat, they were doing the thing in their hands, and then they were eating the grain. You can tell I'm, like, well-versed at this bread-making thing. And they were eating the wheat. And, um, and the Pharisees started dogging on the disciples because it was the Sabbath day, and, and reaping and threshing were, according to the Pharisees, were not allowed on the Sabbath day. So the disciples, by feeding themselves from the grain that they were picking, uh, were violating, according to the Pharisees, the Sabbath. This is Jesus' response to them. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? It continues and says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's a couple things that we don't have time to go into all of this here, but there's a couple things I really want to point out. First of all, um, um, Jesus is making some declarations about himself. It's, it's interesting. I really, really wrestled with this this week because Jesus here says, did you not read how David and his companions went in and ate the bread? And I, and I was reading about that in Luke, and pretty much all the commentators that I read just assumed that David had companions with him. A lot of people think that he didn't have any soldiers with him, but he might have had some servants with him. But I, I don't really buy that, um, because David was with Jonathan alone, 
He left Jonathan, went to Nob. He leaves Nob, and what we'll find out in the next scene, he's still alone when he ends up in Gath. Like, he's alone all through this story. And yet Jesus says his companions, I think it's a rhetorical device that Jesus is using here. He's saying, he's saying don't you know about David and all the guys that w- were with him? And the, and the Pharisees would be like, well, there really wasn't any guys with him. I think Jesus is saying that just to highlight the fact that David was lying. Like, didn't, didn't you know that David, the liar, went to the temple and the priest gave him some food? The reason why I think he's doing that is because later on in the text, at the end here, the very last line, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He calls himself the Son of Man. That's, that's Jesus' reference to himself. The Son of Man is a, is a reference back to Daniel 7, where it talks about the, the Son of Man going up to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and receiving a kingdom that, that, that covers the whole earth, which is a fulfillment of all the promises that God made to David, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, like, do you remember about David the sinner? Well, if, if God provided for David the sinner through this bread, what do you think he's going to do for the Son of Man, the fulfillment of all the promises to David, the one that does, that does and did what David could never do? It's, it's, it's a completely different story, he's saying. In fact, he's talking about the bread of the presence and the Sabbath. Those two two things are tied together. And both of those things are God providing for his people. It's the whole picture of the Sabbath. Like God provides us the rest that we need to rest from our labors because we can't do it on our own. It's this picture of the gospel, like, like God saves those who rest in him. It's this picture of Jesus finishing the work for us. The bread is a picture of God like sustaining and feeding and nourishing his people. And, and he's saying if, if, if David could get fed from this bread, what about the Son of Man? And then he says this. He, said, he, makes, two, he makes two comments. He says in the first paragraph there at the very last line, he says when the, when the priests minister in the temple, on the Sabbath day they, they have to do things like slaughter animals and kill them and burn them. They have to work on the Sabbath day to serve God in the temple. And then he says this, something greater than the temple is here. He's referring to himself. He's saying the temple was this place where God's presence was manifested, where, where people served and worshiped God. And he says, and, and now guess what? I'm not behind the veil in the temple. I'm like right here walking with you. My presence is here now. Like it's so much greater than the temple. And true religion is found in like serving me. And being about my purposes, that's exactly what the disciples were doing. He's like, if you understood that I am God himself, I'm the son of man. And then he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who invented the Sabbath. I am the one who gave the laws on the Sabbath. I sit over the Sabbath and I interpret the Sabbath. And in fact, I fulfill the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of it all. If you would understand that, you wouldn't be so hung up about all your religious nonsense. You would probably be worshiping me instead. And then he says, right in the middle of those two statements, and if you had known what it means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. You know, the, that word compassion, sometimes it's translated mercy. Some of your Bibles might translate it mercy. Sometimes it's translated compassion because it's, it's both of those ideas cooked together. 
Compassion is the, is the emotion that moves us to mercy. Mercy is the actual deeds. But it's both together. Like Jesus is saying is like, you know what? What it really means to like honor the Lord and worship him and serve him. It's not all about all your religious do's and don'ts. It's about being the kind of person that is compassionate and merciful to others and cares for others. Why? Because God is compassionate and merciful. He's the one that cares for his people. He's the one that sustains his people. And so if, you, if you're here this morning and you think like, hey, because I showed up at Creekside this morning and listened to his overlong sermon, um, I've like checked off some religious like duty and I'm good to go for a week. It's the exact kind of stuff that Jesus was talking against. No, you need to be the kind of people that are transformed by the grace of God so that you reflect the character of God in your dealings with all those others around you. He desires compassion, not religious sacrifices. And ultimately, he was the one that made that all possible for us, and we'll see that at the end of my message. You know, but the incident in Nob didn't end there. Um, in verses 8 and 9, something else happens, and, and David makes another mistake. Um, look at what happens in verse 7. He says, Now one of the servants of Saul was there on that day, detained before the Lord, and his, his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's servants. So what we find out is that David's there, he's talking to the priest, he's getting this bread, and there's somebody lurking on. I can imagine like him and David like making eye contact, and they must know each other. And it's Doeg, the Edomites. The Edomites are like long-term enemies of God. Uh, Doeg might have been like a prisoner of war or something because Saul had waged war against the Edomites. We don't know, but he was in charge of, ironically, he was a shepherd in charge of all of like Saul's servants, I mean shepherds. And David knew that Saul had a contract out on his life and that he had told all of his servants that, that he wanted David dead. And so now David, thinking that maybe like Saul doesn't know where he is, all of a sudden he knows that as soon as Doeg's word gets back to Saul, the hunt is back on again. And so David's like vulnerable again. And look what he does. Verse 8, and David said to Ahimelech, Now is there not a spear or a sword in, on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. David's first response when he sees this new threat from Doeg is he begins to ask for, like, weapons. It's really ironic what happens here. Well, for one, David's not a really good liar because he says... <laughs> He says in verse 9, like, we had to leave so quickly, I forgot to grab my sword. But two verses before, I just told you we took this long time of abstinence to prepare for our trip, right? Like, that's the way these things play out sometimes. I don't know how that works, right? Like, it seems like strapping on your sword doesn't take very long. But Ahimelech doesn't have any reason to doubt him. He just, it's probably one of those things later on, he's like, wait a minute. But what happens is, if you remember, just a few chapters before, back in chapter 16 and 17, David met a Philistine by the name of Goliath. You guys might know the story. And in that story, Saul, like all, he doesn't have any weapons. He just has his sling that he used as a, as a shepherd. And he doesn't have any weapons. And Saul says, oh, take my weapons and take my armor. And what does David do? He says, no, like the Lord himself will defend me. So he doesn't take any of Saul's weapons. He just goes out there with what he's always had 
and he, he slays Goliath. And ironically, the, what he does here, as he's faced with threat here at this point in his life, the first thing he does is he asks for weapons. It's the exactly opposite response. In fact, he doesn't just ask for any weapons. He asks for Goliath's weapon, the very guy that he killed as he was trusting the Lord. This is like an act of unfaith for David. He, t- he doesn't turn to the Lord. He turns to like human means, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's going to get worse for him. But this should be a comfort for us. Because this is the same David, like, at the end of his life. It's in 2 Samuel chapter um, 22. I guess I'm kind of skipping ahead, but I'll read it now. At the end of his life, when all of the stuff from Saul had resolved itself, he, he sings this song. He writes this song. And these are, these are some of the, the, these are the opening words. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. Like, do you see that? Like, at the, oh, you can go on to the next one. I thought I was done. Um, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from all my enemies. Right? Like, David, who at the end of his life was able to look back on his life and boldly declare the like sustaining deliverance of God in his life. He's my shield. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. He saves me from my enemies. Wasn't always that way. At the beginning of the time he read from Saul, like he, he, he was white knucklet and he was clinging to all of his own strategies and he was trying to make it on his own. In fact, we, that's what brings us to the next point, is God saves his king. Look what happens next in verse 10. Well, actually, verse 9, he gets, the, he gets the sword. But then in verse 10, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. So as soon as like, he can, he leaves. He takes Goliath's swords and he goes to the city of Gath under the reign of Achish. Like, the way it's talking about there, there, it's not talking about he went up and personally went and said hi to Achish, that he just went into his city and he's hiding out in his city. And again, this is an act of unfaith because Achish, king of Gath, was also a Philistine. Like, he, he took Philistine-like weapons and he went to the Philistine empire to escape from Saul. There's no mention of him going to the Lord. It's way different than the David and Goliath story when he fought the Philistines. Now he's fleeing for refuge with Philistine weapons in a Philistine city, and it gets worse for him. Look what happens. Verse 11. Oh, and let me just tell you like, about this for a second. It's significant that he's in Gath. I mean, you guys might remember this, but does anybody remember what Gath, what Gath is? Goliath's hometown. So the very guy that he killed, and what happened is, is after killing Goliath, there was this huge battle, and the people of Israel pursued the Philistines all the way, it says, up to the gates of the city of Gath, and the road from like Israel down to Gath was littered with the bodies of the Philistines. So this is the very city where David is probably like public enemy number one. And, and, and yet he goes to Gath to flee from the presence of Saul. From a human standpoint, it makes complete sense. I mean, this is, it it actually does. I mean, for those of you that are like, why would he do that? Like, aren't they going to, 
Well, this is before Sunday school and flannel graph. So no one knew what David looked like, right? Do you guys not know what flannel graph is? That's funny. Come on. Work with me on it. It's before Instagram. David didn't like selfie with glass head there. Like, so they didn't have a picture of David, right? So I can imagine David like slipping into the city, hood up, sneak around, like hiding out in the city of Gath. Because that's the very last place anyone would look for him, right? Because it'd be, it's, it's audacious, it's bold. If it works, it's the kind of stuff that they sing epics about. If it doesn't, well, they don't sing about that, right? And it doesn't. Look what happens. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David the king of the land? This is verse 11. Is not David the king of the is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one? And when, as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Apparently that song that they wrote after, after like David killed Goliath became like top 40 in Israel and in the surrounding regions because everybody knew the song. And, and it's interesting that they interpreted it the same way Saul did. If you remember, when, when Saul got mad when they started singing the song because Saul was the king and he only slayed a thousand, whereas David slayed the ten thousands, right? And so he was like, what, what's he going to do? Take from me the kingdom? And the Philistines, basically having heard the song, assumed that David must be the king because everybody's singing David's praises more than Saul's praises. And so the servants were like, I think that's the guy. We were there on the battlefield when he beheaded Goliath, let's nab him, right? So they do. Uh, verse 12, and David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. This is interesting. It's the only time I think in First Samuel where David is said to be afraid. It's not just any fear, it's great fear. Because now the very ones that probably hate him even more than Saul have captured him. And it says, so he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands. So that idea that he's in their hands means that they, they nabbed him, and they're taking him up to go see Achish, king of, king of uh, Gath, and he says that he acted insanely. He scribbled on the doors of the gate. He let the saliva run down his beard. Right? So I, this is how I'm playing. Just humor me here. So David's sneaking around with his hoodie on, and these guys are like, and he can probably tell people are starting to stare at him. And so he starts to go crazy, right? Like drool, I won't drool for you. Um, uh, but he's scribbling on the gates. He's acting all insane. They nab him. He keeps acting insane. Because, like, he doesn't want them to realize who he is. They drag him up before Achish, king of Gath. And I love, uh, <laughs> I love Achish's response, verse 14. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you brought this one to act as a madman in my presence? He's like, apparently I have enough crazy people out here that I don't need one more. Like, you guys are, you guys are nuts to bring this guy to me. Get him out of here. And so they toss him from the city. You know, it's interesting because David here, again, like, going from bad to worse to worse to worse to worse, and all of a sudden he's delivered. And, and we find out then that he returns to the cave of Adullam, chapter 22, verse 1, which is only like 10 miles from his hometown of Bethlehem. He returns to Israel. This, this flight to Judah, I mean this flight to Gath, is followed by a return to like the land of promise. Like David returns. 
But fortunately for us, that's not all the information we have um, about what happened in that last little scene when he got taken captive. In fact, David wrote two songs, um, two songs about that moment. One of them, Psalm 56. Turn with me to Psalm 56. Um, if you're ever reading the Psalms, uh, Psalm 56, and then eventually we'll go into Psalm 34. But there's this little bit, like, my Bible has some, like, italicized words at the top. But then there's some words that aren't in italics that say, at the very beginning, before verse 1, it says, for the choir director, according to Jonath L.M. Rehokim, whatever that means, a mictum of David when he, the Philistines seized him in Gath. So this is a song that David wrote in response to that moment when he was nabbed by the Philistines. And look what he says. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, and they are many who fight proudly against me. Like he's describing both like Saul's like pursuit of him and now the Philistines grabbing him. And then he says this, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? We were just told in 1 Samuel that he was afraid when they nabbed him. And yet David says here, when I'm afraid, I'm going to cry out to the Lord. So I think at that very moment when he was nabbed, acting crazy. He's at the end of his rope. He has nothing, no one, nowhere else to turn. What does he do? When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. In, who, in your word, who, how does it say? In, um, I will put my trust in God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. So at that moment when he had reached the end of his rope, like he turns and he, he, he t- does what the only sane thing to do at that time is he cries out to the Lord. Like, Lord, you got to save me because I'm, I'm a dead man. Right? He goes on. All day long they distort my words and their thoughts against me are for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps and they have waited to take my life because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger, put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And that's such a beautiful expression. Like David, as he's fleeing for his life, apparently had some times when he was just like sobbing. And he says, but you know what, God? Like in the midst of all of that, not one of my tears like was wasted. You've, you captured them all. You saw them all. You wrote down like my days in your book. Like you know like the burdens of my heart. Then my enemies will turn back in the day that I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. Like God had made promises to David and David was clinging to those. He didn't start there. But he had the wisdom to go there. Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. He's saying, like, my, my feet, were, feet were going down this path of stumbling that was going to lead to my death, and you, like, turned me back from it. 
and put me back on the path of life. Like in that moment of desperation, David calls to the Lord and the Lord saves him. Go back to Psalm 34, a few pages back. Pretty significant moment for David. He got two songs out of it. You can see that little note at the beginning before verse one again, a Psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Like kings, don't be confused by that. Kings in the ancient world had lots of names. I don't know why, Um, uh, but uh, different languages, I think, but but, uh, it's the same incident when he feigned madness before Abimelech. He, he starts with this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. It's that same moment again. God just didn't just deliver him from his circumstances, even though he's going to say that in just a minute. He delivered him from his fears. Like, my mind tends to, like, catastrophize things and make worst-case scenarios about things. Am I alone on that? Okay, three more people. Um, I feel really not, like, alone here this morning. God God delivered, like, David from his fears, like, and, and they were great fears. He goes on. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. So David's instructing us, and he's saying, like, man, run to the Lord, run to the Lord, run to the Lord, because, like, those who run to the Lord will lack nothing. They shall not want. He learned some lessons, too. Look what he says. Verse 12. Like, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. It's a pretty interesting thing to write in a response to a story that's like filled with David's deceit. He's like, man, when I was in my deception, I wasn't going to see long days. Like, learn from my lesson. It's like Matthew Henry said, like, it's written for our admonition. Not even the direst of straits should we resort to like the strategies that David used. The eyes of the Lord, verse 15, are upon the are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Now the righteous like um, aren't those that can make it on their own. It's not that God helps those that can help themselves. The righteous are those that cry out to the Lord and he hears them. The face face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off their memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Think about David's circumstances. He, He loses his best friend. He flees has to lie to the priest, gets a, gets this sword, flees to the, to, like, everything's just disaster for him. 
this bad decision after bad decision after bad decision ends up in like surely going to die. He cries out to the Lord and God saves him. And he's brokenhearted at that point, I'm sure. Like he's lost all hope. And if you're at that place, this should be an encouragement to you because at the, at the, if you only cry out to the Lord at the, end of the, at the end of your rope, then praise the Lord that he brought you to the end of your rope so that you cried out to the Lord. He's delivering your feet from stumbling. He's returning you to this path of life. Don't just keep digging yourself a deeper and deeper hole. Interestingly enough, like in verses 19 and 20, um, David points us forward to, to Jesus. Look what he says. He says, as many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, interestingly enough, that's, that's a reference back to Exodus when God was giving the commands for the Passover lamb that you weren't supposed to break the legs of the Passover lamb. The sacrifice through which God was going to deliver his people from captivity in Egypt. And that Passover lamb points us forward to someone else that was sacrificed to deliver his people from captivity, from even a worse oppressor like sin and the curse of sin that lays over this world. What, what David is saying is here is like, man, this, what God's doing here has something that I don't even fully understand, but it, it has to do with God delivering his people through the sacrifice and the suffering of his like servant. Like it's in Jesus Christ that our, that, that our salvation and deliverance is found. It's in him that our, that our provision is found. It's in him that, that he sustains us. So if you're, if you're at that place of being at the end of the rope, or even if you're not, I would encourage you, if you haven't dug the hole yet, don't start. The solution, no matter where you are, is like, even if you're at this place of insanity, like, cry out to the Lord. Let him minister to you and sustain you. Because Jesus, Jesus is the one that took all of your guilt and all of your shame and all of the condemnation that you deserve. He bore it on himself so that you could be rescued. And the story with David, like, is a story of, of like, this path that we, that, we all, that we all go down. And we should learn from his example. But there's something even bigger to it, too. Because part of what God was doing here wasn't just rescuing anybody. He was rescuing David, his king, who, like, like fell into sin here. And, and David was, is one of the most revered kings of Israel. He was the one that everybody always looked to. He was the one that God's promises were made to. And he was a wreck. And in fact, this isn't the, the last time that he lies in the story. He does it again, and, he, and, and his sin is even worse. Think about this for a second. If God can save his people through a guy like David, what is he going to do for us through his perfect son, Jesus Christ, who, who never sinned, who never faltered, who never wavered, who, who fulfilled all of God's like law for us? We have so much more to look forward to. So, Aaron, why don't you come up to close us? I think we're going to sing Psalm 34, at least uh, parts of it, together.
But if you're here this morning and I don't know where everybody's hearts are at, but I would just challenge you to, to cry out to the Lord. Spend some time in Psalm 56 and Psalm 34 this week because that's what turned the story of David around. Cry out to the Lord, trust in him. Jesus is the one that, who's, who was the perfect Passover sacrifice for us and, and in whom um, we are delivered from all of our fears. So Aaron, why don't you close us and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we are um, people who have plenty of reason to be afraid. We're, we're afraid because we're just weak. We're weak because of our sin. We're weak because of our poor decisions. We're weak um, in every way. We, we have a foe that's against us and we, we, stand, um, yeah, we stand under your judgment and under, under condemnation and we have no... Um, way to deliver ourselves on our on our own so i i just praise you and magnify you for the the work of jesus christ that delivers us from all of that and um, father i just ask if there's anyone here who who has never placed their faith in you and has never relied upon you and cried out to you um to to save them from um, all of those things that we should fear um, i just ask that you would draw them to yourself this morning and um, ca cause them to call upon you and, and experience your salvation. And, and Father, for each of us as we as we um, walk this path before us this coming week, that you would um, cause us to call out to you when we're in need. That we would praise you as we as we experience your your salvation, um, and that you would receive much glory for how we um, live and walk and speak and and um, spend our days um, this coming week. Just pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen.